My name is Scott Nye, and this is Talking Radical Radio. Hello and welcome to Talking Radical Radio, where we bring you grassroots voices from across Canada. We give you the chance to hear many different people who are facing many different struggles, talk about what they're doing, how they're doing it, and why they're doing it, in the belief that such listening is a crucial step in strengthening all of our efforts to change the world. On this week's show, I'll be speaking with Nick Dreger. On the left, the term organizing gets used in a number of different ways. Some people use it very broadly to capture a wide range of different kinds of grassroots political activity. Other people, however, argue that there's value to being able to clearly name different models of change and different kinds of grassroots practices so we can distinguish what they require and what they can do. More precise applications of the term organizing generally point towards approaches to social change that prioritize direct engagement with people who are not already involved or in agreement, and building collective power through bringing people together in some sort of organization. And even within that, there's variation. For today's guest, when he talks about organizing, he specifically means starting from people who are in some kind of bounded constituency, all of whom are subject to somebody else's power, and bringing them together in a group to exert collective power and win concrete demands. His focus is workplace organizing, where workers are subject to the power of the boss, but the same principles can apply to tenant organizing, where renters are subject to the power of the landlord. Nick Dreger lives in northern Alberta and has been involved in union organizing for almost 20 years. It started out when he was a call center worker. He and some of his co-workers tried to unionize, and they lost badly. Soon after, he started working at Canada Post and got active in both internal mobilizing campaigns and external organizing drives with the Canadian Union of Postal Workers. He left the post office after about a decade and took a job with the Athabasca University Faculty Association, and recently he started working as the Director of Labor Relations and Organizing with the Alberta Union of Provincial Employees. Though he isn't a member anymore because his current job is a management position with the AUPE, for most of these two decades he was also a member of the Industrial Workers of the World, or the Wobblies. And he's a contributor to Organizing Work, a website with a grassroots focus committed to honest, strategic discussions about the nuts and bolts of organizing. Recently, Dreger published an article on organizing work called Common Organizing Mistakes. In it, he distills his two decades of experience and countless conversations with colleagues and comrades to describe some of the most common errors that people make when they're organizing. Some of these flow from broader weaknesses in a lot of left grassroots political culture, Things like focusing too much on talking with people who already agree with you, or assuming you already know what people need and not doing enough listening. Others are more practical, like going public with your campaign too quickly, having a tactical repertoire that's too narrow, and not doing enough to inoculate workers, which means preparing them for what the boss's retaliation is likely to look like. On a broader level, Dreger is skeptical to say the least about a lot of what passes for grassroots political activity these days. In his analysis, all too often it involves bringing people together who already agree with one another, and then the same small cross-section of people doing the same things, while never really engaging with people beyond their own circles. And, most importantly, it rarely involves actually building collective power in contexts where exerting that power can force real material concessions. Social transformation will most effectively begin, he thinks, from collectives based not on shared ideas, but on shared material interests. People who want radical change should, quote, 
pick a constituency that's full of people they disagree with, and start trying to move their politics through that constituency. And the politics that will move is the politics that actually has real revolutionary content." End quote. And the place for everyone to start, he thinks, is by getting a little training in how to organize, sitting down with whoever you happen to work with and really listening to what they're concerned about, and then figuring out what, together, you can do about it. I speak with Greger about his vision of organizing, about the common mistakes organizers make, and about ways to do it better. I'm Nick Dreger, and I recently wrote an article called Common Mistakes by Organizers. It's basically a series of kind of common errors that lead to problems in campaigns, either to do member engagement or to unionize a workplace that I've seen over the years. I first got involved in union organizing about 18 years ago. I was working in a call center. We kept getting periodic layoffs, and the pay was not great, and the work was pretty stressful and terrible. The conditions were not good. And so we tried to unionize, and we got our asses kicked. At the time, I was with the Industrial Workers of the World, but our branch at the time had a policy of not organizing workplaces. So they put me in touch with the Canadian Union of Postal Workers, and we made an attempt to try and organize at this workplace. It did not go very well, and I eventually wound up actually working at the post office shortly after. They coached me on how to get in, and from there, I was involved in a lot of internal mobilizing, a lot of internal organizing, and also external organizing drives. I was at the post office about a decade. I wound up working in rural northern Alberta, where I still live, for the Athabasca University Faculty Association, working with their academic staff and a lot of IT and what's called professional staff, so like graphic designers, editors, learning designers, that kind of thing. And we had a lot of internal mobilizing campaigns that I think were pretty effective. And recently, I have taken a job with the Alberta Union Provincial Employees. Through all of that time, until very recently, I was an IWW member and I advised on a lot of IWW campaigns. Just for listeners who maybe aren't familiar with it, what is the IWW? The Industrial Workers of the World is a pretty old union. It was founded in 1905, so it's 115 years old. It is part of a tradition of unions that once was very big, where they are unions that look to overcome capitalism. So it's a revolutionary union. And it's a long, deep well of historical knowledge of working people who want to not just make their lives better under capitalism, but want to move past it. Given the many different ways the word gets used, what do you mean when you talk about organizing? When I talk about organizing, I'm talking about bringing together people who are in a bounded constituency. That means some kind of group with clear, defined boundaries as to who's in and who's out that are subject to somebody else's power. So tenant organizing, you would be organizing against the people who own the property from which you're renting. Worker organizing, you are organizing workers who are subject to a certain employer arrangement, such as uh, losses, or maybe a certain constellation of employers that use a, a pool of independent contractors. So that's the general idea. It's the art of bringing people together in groups to exert collective power. And why is the clear boundary of the constituency important in how you understand organizing? Organizing is different than other kind of politics that's affinity-based, which means that it's politics based on whether or not people get along, like each other, or have ideas in common. Organizing is deeper than that. It's about people who have 
common interests and their shared struggle to assert those interests and bring people together. I think it's especially important for people who maybe have socialist or left-wing politics to engage with groups that don't think like them, where they aren't in the majority, and where people aren't even necessarily progressives. I think it's an important part of the struggle for a better world is that it's not just about people who sing from the same hymn book, but rather people who take orders from the same people, realizing the power that they have. In the context of workplace organizing, you distinguished between internal campaigns and, like, organizing drives. What are they, and how are they different? So internal organizing and external organizing, and a lot of unions, that's what it's referred to, are basically two different functions that have similar skill sets. Internal organizing is when the union is an established entity, it's an institution in its own right, and you're getting people together in order to assert common demands against an employer. Usually that union will have some kind of legal recognition, like they'll be a certified bargaining agent or something like that. External organizing is a different matter. External organizing is going to places where there isn't a history of union activity, where the union isn't an institution, and definitely does not have any sort of legal certification or standing, and establishing the union as an institution. So often, the external organizing is much more difficult because the union doesn't exist yet. You're building the union. So a typical external organizing campaign in a conventional union with the standard playbook is workers are upset about conditions at their job and they contact the union. The union dispatches organizers who then try and get complete lists of everybody who works at the place where the people are upset. They then work through that list and try to convince everybody to sign union cards And then if they have a high enough level of support, they either file for a union election or simply submit those cards to the government, and then they get certified as a bargaining agent and have the right to represent those members. Having said that, a lot of that is about jumping through legal hoops. A lot of that is about establishing a union in a certain way and under a certain framework. And that framework is something that's drafted by lawyers and politicians and actually has very little to do with whether or not a union campaign is effective or not. You can win a certification for a workforce and be no closer to winning any demands for those workers than you were before. In contrast with that legalistic approach, what does a campaign that actually builds power look like? So the way you actually build power is the first thing you do is you look at a workplace and you find out who cares about what and what things that people care about have the most resonance across the workforce. So the most important thing isn't just talking to the people who come to you who are upset about something, but talking to everybody who works there. And that can be a very slow and difficult process, and it involves a lot of listening and not a lot of telling people. So you listen to what people are concerned about. Then from there, what you want to do is you want to start identifying the people who are the leadership in that workplace. The leadership in that workplace are the people who other coworkers, and this goes for any sort of constituency, the people who other people listen to. And those people are not the people who you agree with. They're not the people who you even necessarily like, but they're the people who, if you have on board with the campaign, they will make the campaign easier and it will go farther by virtue of the fact that there's support for the campaign from the leaders inside the job. So then when you have the leaders on board, you start crafting demands around issues that have resonance with the membership and are somewhat winnable. Things that don't have a lot to do with money are are usually a good one. Often they can seem like fairly small or petty kind of grievances, but what you do then is you mobilize people around those issues in order to show that collective action can win. 
Then what you do is you revise your plan based on your results. You look at the tactics you used and what you did to pressure management, and you try and basically either settle the issue and claim a win or move on to a win you can get, moving in a bit of a cycle that way. That's the basic and broad strokes pattern of building power on the job. But it's really important that the starting point is that you're looking at everybody else, you're listening to everybody else, and you're seeing what everybody can do together to further their own ends, to further what they want from their job. And what does it look like to move from that initial deep listening to people to actually bringing people together to act in common? How do you do that? That depends a lot on the culture of the job, on the people you're working with, and on the demands in particular. But in broad strokes, the way you kind of move from listening to people to bringing demands is you talk to everybody, you get the leaders together, you try and get the leaders on board with the demand, and then at some point, you probably want people to have a committee, and you want to build a committee that can mobilize on the job, and you want that committee to start taking votes and start making decisions collectively together. When you've got an issue where everybody can kind of start acting together, you put that issue on the table for everybody to vote on, and hopefully they will vote in favor of taking the issue on and maybe a bare-bones kind of plan on how to take the issue on, and you move things forward from there, using the kind of circles of influence that are already in the workplace to kind of filter down and bring everybody on board. This one will obviously vary with the kind of workplace too, but... What can it look like to put pressure on an employer? Pressure on the employer can be a lot of different things. Often, people like to think of big dramatic strikes or factory occupations, the kind of things that maybe we saw in the 30s as the single best way to do it. And in some cases, those can be quite effective and really work. But often, if it's a small issue, even just the workers together collectively confronting management and simply saying as a group, this is a problem, we want the issue resolved, and maybe issuing a deadline for when they want the issue resolved, that's another effective way if it's a smaller demand, right? And again, you don't build workers' power with the big dramatic stuff. You exercise workers' power sometimes with the big dramatic stuff. You build workers' power with the smaller kind of fights over little demands, like say a bunch of people in a coffee shop are upset about the shift schedule. So they sit down and they rewrite the shift schedule and then present it to management and say, we want this to be our new shift schedule. We suggest you go along with it. And then they say, we'll give you a day to reply. And if the boss doesn't reply, then what they do maybe is they do a cold shoulder action where at the next staff meeting, they kind of ignore management and just turn their back on them and things like that. And the idea is to kind of escalate based on the workplace and in the particular context in a slow and measured kind of way until the demand, which is usually in the early stages pretty modest, gets met. Any sort of meaningful political activity is about building people's faith in collective action and their confidence and ability to think independently and to challenge ideas from people in authority. That's kind of a subtext of the entire process, right? It kind of sits below the surface of everything you do. But yeah, the whole purpose of this is about getting people to have more faith in what they can do together. So why would you say that that kind of shop floor action is better than, say, filing a grievance or addressing the issue in the next round of formal collective bargaining? The thing about grievances is if you're in a workplace with a collective agreement, and it's established and it's there, and there's a union contract and there's a grievance procedure, there may be some issues that are better suited to the grievance procedure. But the problem with the grievance procedure is that it doesn't build the power and confidence of people acting together at work. 
the grievance procedure is about technical expertise and legal arguments. Whether or not you win a grievance is not a test of strength of the organization on the floor. It is a test of the abilities of the griever, and ultimately what determines whether or not a grievance wins or not is whether or not it's a violation of the rules. And the simple fact is that that's not something that builds power. That's the opposite. It's an appeal to somebody else's power. Let's shift gears now and look at the article that you wrote, Common Organizing Mistakes, published on Organizing Work. Why did you write it? Mostly I just wrote it because I saw recurring things on a lot of the organizers I've been mentoring over the years in a number of organizations, and I've seen a lot of campaigns, and a lot of what Organizing Work does and what we do at Organizing Work is we're a lot of people in a lot of different unions who look at a lot of different campaigns, and you start to see patterns, right? You start to see mistakes that kind of happen over and over and over again. So I kind of wanted to write a piece that took on some of the most common patterns of mistakes that led to problems in organizing campaigns. What would you say is the single biggest mistake that people make? The single biggest mistake is a failure to inoculate properly. Nine times out of ten, if you don't tell workers how the boss is going to come back at them, and you don't tell them in a way that they understand, and they take action, and they are surprised by what the boss does, usually that is the point at which a campaign will completely crater. And a lot of the mistakes around that flow from that problem. How do you recommend that organizers approach that? Part of it is patience. And this is one that I mentioned in the article as well, is imposing a timeline on yourself. Sometimes an organizer will take on an organizing project as a sort of summer break kind of project where they're going to organize a workplace and then they think they're just going to move on. And what happens then is that they start imposing timelines on themselves, like we need to be a public and existing union by the end of the summer because I'm going to go back to university and I need to do this, or I've got another job lined up in the winter and I'm not going to be here anymore, so we need to move at this rate so that it's done before I leave. There's a couple of problems there. One, you're imposing a timeline that's not at all dependent on what the workers need. But then the other thing, too, is that, like, if you're not ready, you're not ready. But what happens is sometimes people are forced out into the public and forced out in the open before they lay the appropriate groundwork. And what happens then is that the project isn't ready. And so what happens is the inoculation doesn't happen. The project goes public early, which is another one I mentioned in the list. And from there, what happens is that people aren't ready to deal with the heat on the floor and a lot of the fence sitters, the neutral people, they turtle and the union is all of a sudden kind of, it's public, it's exposed, it's out there, but it's clearly a minority of the workforce and easily picked off. Another one of the mistakes that you mentioned in your article, and I've seen this mentioned in other critiques of many kinds of activism and organizing, is focusing too much on people who think like you. Why is that a problem? The people who are going to have organizational abilities, the people who are leaders on the job who you need to bring people over, there's just nothing inherent in having left-wing politics, even left-wing politics that I really like and admire, in having those skills. People who are leaders are leaders, and they may be a conservative Mormon, or they may be a total liberal, like Twitter SJW warrior, or maybe they're some kind of communist. Or they could be completely apolitical and kind of allergic to conversations about politics. But what you're looking for in an organizing campaign that's going to succeed is people who other people on the job admire and look up to. And so you need to identify those people and bring them on board. To be brutally honest, there's not a lot that having left-wing politics in itself brings to an organizing campaign. 
you need people who are basically able to talk to each other, people who are able to listen to each other, and people who are able to move together as a group. And from that, when you engage with the employer, there are all sorts of political questions that can lead people in radical directions from there. But the basic building blocks are just simply not there, not taught, or not developed on the left. Another one of the mistakes that you identified was focusing on tasks instead of people. What does that mean? There are trainings out there that are accessible to just about anybody to learn how to organize, and that's actually really great. But the problem with just simply ticking the boxes on the steps and just following the formula is that you can do all of that, and if everybody doesn't actually learn the formula, if they don't all learn the recipe while they're working through the recipe, then they're not going to be any closer to building an organization. It's not enough that people just move through the steps. People need to understand what the steps are and why they exist. People need to understand the recipe and be able to teach the recipe and be able to teach people to teach the recipe in order for it to be effective. It can't just be simply a couple of people with the program in their head and everybody else carrying it out, or else you're very quickly going to find, especially in a lot of workplaces these days where the turnover is just too high, people are going to cycle out and the struggle will be dead within a few weeks. And why do you say that limiting yourself to only a few tactics can be a mistake in organizing? If you do the same thing over and over and over again, they're going to figure out what you're doing and they're going to have a counter move. It's really easy. If you're in a union and you've been working in this union 20, 30 years, and every time bargaining comes up, you run a strike and the strike goes the same way, and it's just you shut her down and all of that, pretty soon the boss is going to figure out what they're going to do, whether it was like a uniform on the refineries in Regina where they built a scab camp and basically had like the workforce living on the work site in order to be, not have to cross picket lines, to grocery stores that have ritualized strikes that basically look the same and go the same every time for decades. If you do the same thing over and over and over again, they'll figure it out and they'll respond. What can organizers do to broaden their tactical repertoires? Well, a great way to do it is to read organizing work. (laughs) Because what we do is we do try and report on what people did and try and provide an honest balance sheet of what worked and what didn't. And the whole point is to kind of reflect critically. And we do really look for stories where people did things a little bit differently and where people tried to do things with at least a little bit of a twist or took a different approach to the problem. So one of the main things you can do is if you have decided you want to organize is to talk to other people who are organizing and how they did things and try and collect a sort of library of tactics in your head so that you do have the opportunity to switch things up. What are the range of different ways that conventional unions relate to the approach to organizing that we've been talking about today? Almost every union relates, at least on some level, to it insofar as they need to organize in order to grow and develop and bring new people in. So any union that's organizing is going to use some of these ideas. I think that where unions start moving away from each other is how much emphasis they put on cultivating and building up the ability of workers to mobilize after they've got them in. I think the standard playbook in the trade union movement is to develop organizing skills for when they need it at bargaining in order to pull it out of the air and in order to leverage demands at the bargaining table. And then they want to turn it off when bargaining's done and they can go back to labor peace in order to manage things until bargaining is open again. And the difference is, I think, in this approach that I'm outlining here is that I'm saying you kind of need to continuously organize. And that does mean that there are fewer opportunities for labor peace and you're not going to practice that kind of labor relations that you do when everything is hunky-dory and the contract's hammered down and you're just filing grievances, and instead you're still struggling for control over the job. 
Are there cases where the union itself can be a barrier to this kind of shop floor organizing? I think that that depends a lot on the union in question. I think that there's a tremendous amount of pressure on unions to be a barrier. I think a lot of other organizations can be a barrier, too, for what it's worth, though. But look, if there's an issue and a wildcat strike will solve it and the workers go out on strike, the union is going to incur a tremendous amount of fines if they don't order those workers back to work. And unions that don't order workers back to work, even if the workers organize that strike themselves, the union had very little to do with it. Unions that do not do that do tend to run up against problems. So there's a fair amount of pressure on unions to try and tamp that down. Just about everything in the legal framework that governs unions tries to incentivize a kind of union that discourages this kind of activity and does not want actual grassroots organizing, but instead union activity is entirely a technical exercise. What kind of relationship do you think there is or can be between the kind of organizing that we've been talking about today and broader goals within social movements or on the left, however you understand that, for social transformation? I think the problem with the broader left goals for social transformation right now is that they all run about a mile wide and an inch deep. So the problem with most social movements is it's about getting everybody who's nominally on the same page together, putting them in one place and maybe disrupting things. But outside of certain key constituencies, like certain parts of the labor movement, certain kinds of indigenous struggles, a lot of social movements outside of those kinds of groups are largely like-minded people marching around in circles and shouting slogans. They don't have any institutional power in society. They don't have any leverage. And, and to be honest, they have no reason for people to get on board with what they're doing other than agreeing with the vision for society they have. But the problem is your vision for society doesn't mean anything if you are unable to actually deliver meaningful changes to people in their day-to-day -day life. Being able to back up demands is key. So 90% of social movement activity, in my opinion, and I'm going to be harsh here, is a waste of time. It's mostly a feel-good activity for people who want to feel smarter than other people rather than getting things done. So I think that the best thing that people with a broader vision for society to do is to pick a constituency that's full of people they disagree with and start trying to move their politics through that constituency. And the politics that will move is the politics that actually has real revolutionary content. The politics that doesn't move is mostly just self-indulgent stuff that's better described as a hobby. What would you say to listeners who are new to the ideas you've been talking about today, but who are excited by them, as first steps that they can take to making some of this stuff real? The first steps you can take are to talk to your coworkers about what they are concerned about and really genuinely listen and try and find the deeper content, not just the surface stuff. So if someone's complaining about immigrants taking their jobs, ask them why they feel so insecure. What are they worried about? What do they have on the line? Why are they worried about losing their job? The deeper context, the answers to those questions will lead them in a better direction than blaming some other worker for their problems. The second thing they can do is find an organization that is willing to train them and get involved in that organization. Contact a union that does real organizing to work with them on building a presence at their job and building a union campaign where they work. Don't do it in a flashy way. Don't draw too much attention to yourself. It all starts with some pretty humble and modest questions and be built from there. You have been listening to my interview with longtime labor organizer Nick Dreger about his article, Common Organizing Mistakes. You can read it on organizing.work. 
To find out more about Talking Radical Radio, the guests, the theme music, and the ways that you can listen, go to talkingradical.ca and click on the link for the radio show. On the site, you can sign up for email updates or follow us on Facebook, Twitter, iTunes, SoundCloud, and other platforms. I'm Scott Nye, a writer and media producer based in Hamilton, Ontario, and the author of two books of Canadian history told through the stories of activists, published by Fernwood Publishing. Thank you very much for listening, and I hope you tune in again next week. Thank you.